Well, happy November 17th, everybody. If you've been waiting for the 17th of November for a special reason, congratulations. Uh, it, it's arrived. It's finally it's Thursday here. Day. Yeah, I mean, who hasn't been waiting for November 17th? Well, uh, hey, we're really glad to have uh, uh, Professor Dr. Fadel Kaboob with us today because we're going to be talking about inflation. And boy, I mean, nothing could have been more dramatic in the minds of Americans, the press told us, than the pressures of inflation and how voting for the right candidate was going to solve your inflation uh, woes. Well, uh, so, you know, around here on the Common Good Podcast, we spend time talking about all things that we think matter to people, including things like inflation, but it's rather complicated. So we bring in professionals when they can help us. And uh, Dr. Kaboob, you have blown my mind over the last uh, year and a half of talking about how the monetary system actually works and really how it impacts inflation. So you're the right guy for today. Not only are you a uh, associate professor of, you know, uh, economics at Denison University, a place that we visited just weeks ago. And by the way, what a little gem that Taco Dan's uh, restaurant is around the corner there. I mean, that guy, uh, he's a piece of work. And uh, we had a tremendous, tremendous time there. And uh, so not only, I don't know if you are a frequenter of Taco Dan's, um, but they have I'm a not. fantastic enchilada. <laughs> well, a tremendous enchilada. I don't know about anything else that goes on around there, but we stumbled onto that. <laughs> uh, but Fado, you, you also are an expert in global issues. Um, I mean, I think that's one of your areas of, of uh, teaching, isn't that right? Yes, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me back on, on the show. It's always a pleasure. And, and thanks for visiting Granville, Ohio. Uh, last uh, Was it last week? Or a couple I, weeks I ago? I can't remember. A few weeks ago, yeah. It's, it's, it's all a blur. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that, that was on our Vote Common Good tour. We we're asking uh, faith voters to consider the common good as their voting criteria and um, also taking on the threat of Christian nationalism in the world. So there's a lot of issues that face our society. But when inflation shows up, and people mm -hmm. just freak out, normally around the price of gas, price of foods. And sometimes, I don't know, maybe the price Ticketmaster has to charge for service fees for Taylor Swift <laughs> concerts. I mean, these are the kinds of things yes. that really grab the culture the by the throat. The things we should be upset it. about, yeah. Yeah, shake, yeah. shake it to attention. Fado, give, give us just the quick rundown for people that are watching for the yeah. first time. What causes inflation? <laughs> what uh, And what are the, the theories? What are the stories that we're told about what causes inflation? Because if you scroll, as I did through Google this morning, uh, I saw two different explanations, which we can get into later, about what causes inflation. One of those is, well, it's monetary policy. That's this fellow from Stanford University. And when I see someone from Stanford, telling me things. I tend to just believe them. And so I uh, first Google result on my phone was, you know, what causes global inflation? And it is monetary policy from the Federal Reserve, that the Federal Reserve has done the right or wrong thing and that causes or doesn't cause inflation. Then another Google search says, no, 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 or uh, not another Google search, a scroll down, maybe a three swipe scroll for, down for me, led to another conclusion, which was, no, it's amount of resources that are available in the system, high demand because of the pandemic and the war in Ukraine is what's caused global inflation. So what's a person to do? How do we understand what causes this? Not only because we're just trying to figure out, you know, the, the magics of the economy, but what we're supposed to do about it and, and what's ultimately going to change this, these inflation pressures. So how do you understand it as the, the wizard of all things inflation? <laughs> well, I'll start with, uh, with my explanation of what I think is causing inflation. I'll, I'll walk you through the logic uh, and then we can conclude 
with what kind of policy solutions we should be putting in place to, to address the real kind of underlying sources of inflation. And then we can go back to, you know, some of the, the dominant uh, kind of narratives about who caused inflation and the idea that the Fed and monetary policy caused it and can fix it. Um, so we'll, we, can, we can talk about that. So to me, uh, let's just focus on the U.S. in particular. Let's be very clear about what we're talking. When, when economists, when the Fed, when the media talks about inflation, they're referring to what the Bureau of Labor Statistics is publishing on a monthly basis, which is the change in the consumer price index, which is a complicated name for a concept that's very simple. So the BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, they basically look at the average American family and they look at what we consume on average, not the richest, not the poorest family, not the fanciest items, not the cheapest items, but the average. And they'll look at those uh, items, you know, from milk and butter and transportation and, you know, clothing and entertainment, all kinds of things, like a large basket of consumption items that the average family buys. And they put a price tag on every item, kind of the average price tag. And then they calculate a weighted average. Of course, the price of a bubble gum is not going to be as important as the price of milk or the price of, you know, uh, you know, corn or something like that. So we weigh the items based on their importance to the average American family. And that produces a monthly index or a monthly average. And the BLS will track that average, that index, the consumer price index from month to month. If the consumer price index goes up, we call it inflation. If it goes down, we call it deflation. And when we refer to the inflation rate, it's usually a reference to the annual change, like a 12-month change, not mm -hmm. month to month. There's so many you know, little things that happen and seasonal effects and things like that. So what we call inflation is the annual change. So in that consumer basket, historically, when you track what's been happening in the U.S., there are some items that actually inflate above the average that gets mm -hmm. reported mm -hmm. by the media. And there are some items that deflate, actually. And what we get is the average. So over the last you know, 10 years before the pandemic started, before this inflation thing started, our average inflation rate was right below 2%. Doesn't mean that everything increased by 2%. Right. It means that some items increased by 15% and some items deflated right, by 6 mm -hmm. or 7%. Mm -hmm. And we get that average of 1.5, 1.8, or 2% uh, inflation rate pre-pandemic. So pre-pandemic, when you track which items have been inflating tremendously yeah. uh, for the last three decades before the pandemic, it's four key areas. And, and, and those are the areas that we really need to pay attention to beyond the pandemic, beyond the, the, the kind of the short term. And those items are actually well known to the average American family because we pay those prices and we know where they come from. It's healthcare, it's education, energy and transportation, and real estate, housing. These are the sources of inflation pressure. Um, and we haven't done anything to address them pre-pandemic, meaning when you look at what's actually causing those inflation pressure points, it's usually two things. One is shortage of productive capacity. In other words, when we don't have enough um, resources in the healthcare industry, when we don't have enough resources in, in housing, affordable housing, mm -hmm. then you have too much demand, not enough supply, and sometimes the supply is controlled by market power and is held back by market power. 
um, then you have prices going up. And then the second source of inflation is when you have abusive market power actually taking advantage of its dominance in a particular mm -hmm. industry and, and they can raise prices simply because they can, or in other words, because we let them, because we don't have yeah. antitrust laws that make sense for the 21st century. Uh, and we don't have lawmakers, the 535 people we elect, who are in charge of introducing antitrust laws and enforcing antitrust laws. Uh, they don't have the political courage to bite the hands that feed them politically in terms of the, the influence of the super PACs in, in these industries in healthcare and pharmaceuticals and uh, oil and gas and, and so on. So those are the inflation pressure points that we haven't dealt with. Uh, and then comes COVID with the global disruption of supply chains, uh, traffic jams in the ocean, uh, you know, factories shutting down all over the world, especially mm -hmm. in Asia, yeah. especially in China. To this day, actually, China is still opening and closing um, certain regions and certain uh, industrial zones based on COVID cases. So that's causing a, a ripple effect throughout uh, the entire system and causing shortages. And when you have, again, abusive market power that knows when to take advantage of these disruptions and shortages, it can raise prices beyond, above and beyond what would be normally the cost of doing business, the cost of the disruption itself. So we see that effect as well. And then finally, we have the uh, conflict in uh, between Russia and the Ukraine and the disruption to uh, food prices, because the Ukraine and Russia both are major exporters of, of basic food items to the rest of the world, and energy prices uh, related to the conflict itself and the sanctions and counter sanctions that uh, uh, come out of the, the conflict. And then also, let's not forget the, the amount of minerals uh, that Russia exports to places like China and India and the rest of the world to feed into the industrial um, uh, system all of those prices are going through the roof um, since the conflict started. So you have these layered effects of inflation pressure points, and it translates into what we have today. Um, so the question becomes, if, if we believe in the theory that says, oh, the Fed caused the inflation because they pumped so much money in the system since 2008 yeah. with quantitative easing and low interest rates and all that. So that theoretical perspective tells us today that we need to raise interest rates, have yep, the Fed yep. fix the problem and unwind the quantitative easing that it's done over the last decade and turn into quantitative tightening. Now tell me this, if we raise interest rates in the US, will that end the conflict in the Ukraine? If we raise interest rates in the US, will that reduce the abusive market power of big pharma? If we raise interest rates, will that all of a sudden produce more public housing, affordable housing? All the inflation, will it end the disruptions of supply chains and and uh, and the opening and closing of COVID-related, um, you know, disruptions in, in China, for example? Of course mm -hmm. not, right? So what will raising interest rates in the U.S. do? In the U.S., by the way, the Europe is doing the same. All other major central banks are raising interest rates to you know, supposed, yeah. supposedly fight inflation. What it does is that number one, it can actually fuel inflation because it raises the cost of doing business for yeah. entities that actually need to borrow to continue to operate. It will 
prevent us from building additional productive capacity, right. say in logistics, to ease the supply chain disruptions. Because now we realize that we need to move away from just-in-time supply chains, which was what dominated uh, yeah. uh, corporate America uh, in the last three decades, to just-in-case supply chains. So we actually need to build more productive capacity and higher interest rates will make that more expensive and will slow it down and will simply drag us deeper into, into this. But here's what the Fed has actually explicitly told us uh, about why they're raising interest rate and how far they're willing to go. Uh, I'm, I'm actually glad they're not hiding this. That, that it's oh. not just the illusion that higher interest rates will somehow solve inflation. They know that higher interest rates will actually slow down demand, meaning it will cause unemployment. And they said they're willing to go as far as even causing a recession with mass unemployment to fight inflation. And here's the logic. And, and this is this is not just the Fed inventing this. This is decades of economic theory that the Fed is, is following, which says when you raise interest rates high enough, certain businesses will not continue uh, to be able to borrow or refinance their debt or it will have to file for bankruptcy. They'll lay off workers. Unemployed workers will not be able to buy a new dishwasher. Unemployed workers will not be able to buy a, a treadmill. Unemployed workers will not be able to increase demand for goods and services across the system. So as that reduces demand, it allows the existing supply to keep up and catch up, and that will lower prices eventually. So that's the perverse thinking, uh, literally, that we have in the economics profession that says, let's throw a whole bunch of people under the bus with unemployment, with the recession, with bankruptcies, in order to fight inflation that we can't really control here. The only parts of the inflation process that we control here is taxing and regulating abusive market power in the areas that I described, is building additional productive capacity, making the market more productive, more competitive, more democratic. These are the things that we can do here in the United States. Um, and it's mostly in the hands of Congress, by the way, not really the Fed, mm -hmm, uh, not the mm -hmm. Federal Reserve Bank. So it's really the 535 people we elect in Washington, D.C., who have the power of the purse, the power of taxation, the power of regulation to do this. And, uh, you know, the other thing that Congress can do, the White House can do, is find a peaceful solution to this conflict in Europe. Because yeah. escalating with sanctions and counter sanctions is not going to ease the inflation pressures. Mm -hmm. And it's not going to stop the, the bloodshed uh, in, in, in the Ukraine. And now, you know, God forbid this thing spreads beyond the Ukraine with what happened in the last couple of days with the, um, uh, the, the missile that fell in, uh, uh, in, in Poland. In Poland. Yeah. Uh, th th that's, that's a very dangerous uh, trigger point for escalation mm -hmm. that we should avoid at all costs and, and bring this conflict to, to an end. And, and we're doing a little bit of this. If you've noticed, there is a, an initiative to allow, uh, because of the naval blo blockade that Russia is imposing on, on the Ukraine and the, and the Black Sea, uh, there has been you know, very intense negotiations that have successfully reached mm -hmm. an agreement to allow the Ukraine to export 
uh, its agricultural products to the rest of the world, which helps us ease the global inflation pressures and help us prevent starvation in many parts of the world. Uh, so we know how to do these things. So mm -hmm. let's continue and double down on these negotiations to find a peaceful um, end to this to, to this insanity. Yeah, uh, and and focus on the things that matter. But raising interest rates, uh, like Professor John Taylor from Stanford uh, is is advocating, is not going to stop the bloodshed. It's not going to end the the COVID disruptions or, or or reduce the abusive market power of Wall Street or right. big pharma or big oil and gas. Yeah, it just hurts the people that are already being hurt by inflation. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Now you mentioned Congress, and one of our favorite people in Congress is Representative Katie Porter out of California. And in a recent hearing on the causes of inflation, uh, there's this great clip of her grilling Mike Konzel, the director of macroeconomic analysis at the Roosevelt Institute. In classic Katie Porter fashion, she uses this great chart to point out that of the increase in cost per item, 53% of that increase is from corporate profit and not from things like increase in wages or increase in right. uh, the cost of wow. parts to make the widget. And in previous decades, only 11.5% of the unit price index was reflected in corporate profits. So corporations are gouging us, mm -hmm. making tons of money, and blaming inflation and blaming rising costs and supply chain. And they're getting away with it. I don't hear enough people talking about corporate profits as the primary driver of inflation. Oh, and corporations are very open about it. They're, they're actually saying it publicly yeah. in, in their shareholder you know, conference Oh, yeah, calls. they're bragging about it in their shareholder Regularly. <laughs> uh, so, so this is, I mean, we know this very clearly, that market power is taking advantage, literally taking advantage of, of the pain uh, that is related to the COVID disruptions, that's related to the conflict in the Ukraine, um, mm -hmm. Because if if we were talking about just the inflation part, the the raising your price just to cover the cost of doing business because there's been delays and cost of shipping is a little higher because of energy prices, cost of fertilizers is a little bit higher because of this. That's completely understandable. We can understand mm -hmm. that. But then when your profit margin actually starts to increase substantially then we know that you're raising your price above and beyond the cost of doing business, including the cost of paying labor a little more, the cost of your energy and transportation and shipping and fertilizers and all of that. So we know this and corporations have been saying it, you know, corporate CEOs have been bragging about it and, and corporate uh, kind of shareholder uh, conference calls on a regular basis. Um, so who's going to stop them from this? Yeah. And why are they able to do this when other businesses can't? Because they have market control, because we have a non-competitive market. This idea of uh, kind of uh, perfectly competitive markets that uh, economists talk about in, in their classrooms is, is nonsensical because we know that the market is dominated by a handful of corporations in each industry and increasingly a network of corporations that cut across industries. And this is where the, the role of um, hedge funds and, and financial uh, institutions becomes 
so dangerous to the democratic process, so dangerous to to the economic uh, livelihood of, uh, of of people around the world when you have a handful of financial institutions that uh, own uh, a majority or a dominant uh, portion of companies across different sectors where they can control, so to speak, the supply chain connections that we usually think of across industries and, and across sectors. They control the whole process and they mm-hmm. can squeeze and apply pressure and, and finance and not finance certain industries to make sure that the profits that they squeeze out of every sector is satisfactory to, to their needs. And, and that goes counter to mm. anything that even the, the, the strongest believers in capitalism and, and market competitions would, would agree with. And, and that means we have to have the political courage, and I insist on it being political courage, uh, because this is in the hands of the Department of Justice. This is in the hands of, uh, of Congress. This is in the hands of congressional committees to investigate uh, and, and open uh, hearings uh, related to this. And we've done this before. This is, this is the funny part. Before the New Deal was actually introduced, there was a lot of opposition to it uh, by people in Congress and by the elites, the, the corporate elites in the United States. And there was very similar level of corruption and very similar level of uh, kind of, you scratch my back, I scratch your back between the political and, and the corporate sector. And we had to have a series of investigations to cleanse the system, to cleanse the political system, the economic system of these practices. And it was called the PICORA investigations, the PICORA mm-hmm. hearings. We couldn't have had a new deal back then, 100 years ago, without a clean deal in terms mm-hmm. of the, the political and economic mm-hmm. system. And, and we're sort of trapped in the same situation right now. We're not going to have a Green New Deal or a Build Back Better or any mm-hmm. of the transformative things that this country desperately needs without a clean New Deal. And mm-hmm. and, and this, this is why these elections are so important, not, not just to vote against the people you don't like or to prevent the worst case scenario from happening, but we really need to shift the conversation to the people we vote for because we don't like the other option. Are they actually doing what needs to be done? Or are they simply holding on to the status quo of the political and economic establishment and just tweaking around the edges? That's really, to me, that's the challenge. That's the big question of, of democracy, really. It's not just about inflation. So, Fado, that's that's super helpful, right? Knowing that the what we say when we're talking about inflation is a very specific set of numbers, those numbers are impacted by behaviors. The thing that I think captures a lot of people's attention is the the conditions by which we've had abusive monopolies, the conditions by which we've been extracting uh, major profits. That's been going on for at least the last 20 years. And as far as I know, in the last 20 years, the monetary policy people have been trying to get inflation to tick up right before the pandemic. They were like, yeah. it's too low. So they keep cutting interest rates. That's why interest rates were at zero. <laughs> you know, or yeah. they're paying people to have money. They're trying, they were trying to get inflation to come up to yeah. a reasonable level, but it didn't happen. Yeah. So fill in the blanks for me. If what's caused all of this is this set of conditions, political uh, 
uh, lack of supervision of monopolies, the extraction of too much uh, profit from certain sectors. Why did we not see inflation for the previous 20 years? And then why did it come on so suddenly? And why is it so global if it's anything sure. other than the pandemic? Like, in other words, talk me out of the current inflation being nothing more than the impact of a global shutdown for six to 18 months and then the bounce right. back. Like, why are we freaking out? Isn't that all that it is? Sure. And, wh and why did we not have inflation 20 previous years all over the world when these same conditions were in place? Very good question. So uh, as you said, Doug, the, the Fed and the ECB and the Bank of Japan, especially for since 2008, in the case of the Bank of Japan, since the 90s, they've uh, had a very aggressive uh, policy to move the inflation level from that one and 1.2 and 1.3% to two and hopefully above. And, and that was confusing to a lot of people. Why mm -hmm. does the central bank want more inflation, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and the post uh, 2008 crisis. And it's for a very simple but counterintuitive reason, which is deflation is actually an extremely dangerous trap. Yeah. And the Fed and the ECB were trying to avoid deflation because when your inflation rate is at 1%, you're too close to zero. And once you go below zero, you're in a deflation spiral. Uh, and Japan has been struggling with deflation for decades now, tried every trick in the book to, to get out of it. We can talk about Japan another day. But when we in the US and Western Europe and the rest of the world after 2008 fell into that really close to deflation um, vicious uh, um, uh, kind of uh, cycle, uh, the Fed sort of brought out the, the big bazooka, so to speak, of monetary policy with quantitative easing to avoid the deflationary spiral. So I'll give you just a couple of quick examples as to why deflation is so dangerous so we can understand why we need to escape it and what the Fed was trying to do and, and how it led or not to, to the current inflation cycle. When deflation happens, it means the average price level goes down, which means the dollar bill that I have in my pocket, I can buy more stuff with it. So the purchasing power of a dollar bill increases with deflation. But with inflation, of course, as you know, the purchasing power of my dollar bill goes down with inflation. So you might think, well, that's great. With deflation, I can buy more with the same dollar in my pocket. Yeah. Well, that's great. But if you have debt, if you owe a bank uh, money for student loans or car loans or credit card or your mortgage, uh the dollar bill that you pay to the bank is worth more. So the real value of your debt with deflation goes up. Hmm. And that's a very dangerous thing because if, I, if I'm a company and I borrowed you know, $10 million to build a factory and now I'm paying it back and all of a sudden deflation happens and it goes on for hmm. a number of years, um, that $10 million that I'm paying back is now worth two factories right? Because the purchasing power of the dollar bills that I'm using to pay my debt is worth more. So that makes my debt burden much higher than mm -hmm. otherwise. Um, so it discourages borrowing and it discourages economic activity. For industrial production, this is extremely important. This is how we get into great depressions, by the way. For industrial um, production that actually takes time to you know, produce the different right. components, ship them, assemble them, package stuff, get to the marketplace. Let's say there is like three to six month process of 
actually producing a particular item, say a car or a piece of equipment. When deflation is happening, it happens very rapidly, actually month to month. So it's, a, it's as if you're buying all of your inputs when prices are up here. And by the time you assemble and produce your stuff and get it to the marketplace, the selling price will be lower because yeah, deflation right. is happening. Now that's not a business model. You're killing you. Right? Yeah, right. Prosperity. So that's why industrial production literally shuts down when there's deflation. And that's exactly what happened during the Great Depression. The Great Depression was not a period of inflation. It was a period of rapid deflation that lasted mm. for 10 years in the US, 20 years in, mm. in Europe, and, and that completely shut down economic activity. So that's why we want to avoid deflation at any cost. And that's really what the what the it's Fed worse and, than inflation, basically. Absolutely, you're saying. because it, it literally leads to a Great Depression. The reason why we called the 2008 crisis the Great Recession, not the Great Depression, because we managed to avoid those those cycles. So certain things that the Fed did in the aftermath of uh, the 2008 uh, financial crisis uh -huh. were warranted. The bailouts shouldn't have lasted for 10 years. And so most let me importantly, pause. let me pause yeah, for a second ahead. and ask you this. Yeah. Does that mean then that the Fed's ability to deal with deflation is more powerful? They have more ability to prevent deflation than they do to prevent inflation. They can contribute to both, but they're not the only entity that can manage the economy. <laughs> That's Either precisely one. my point. Okay. The, the failure of, uh, of what we've done post-2008 was that we handed the keys to the Fed and yep. Congress was blocked. We didn't do the hard work to right. bring people back to work and to bring people back to work with decent wages, right? Inequality went through the roof in the last 10 years because we haven't done the fiscal policy spending, the investment I in see. infrastructure, in all the things that are badly, badly lacking so in the US economy. So you're saying that the response that Congress had to the 2008 financial crisis, which was caused by our own deregulation and all this, right? that, that response to the crisis was to say, the Fed will save us. So that's why people know Ben Bernanke and they know all the Fed people. Very few Congress people or politicians were famous for solving, you know, that they said the Fed solved it. No, there, there was a fiscal policy intervention by Congress, but it was mostly incentives and tax cuts, which yeah. is a very weak and indirect sort of market-friendly market intervention that led to larger government deficits and immediately triggered people saying, aha, now we're, we're going bankrupt, so we should stop the fiscal spending and end it there. And of I course, see. when, you know, post Obama, we go to a Trump administration that doubled down on tax cuts uh, and, and didn't really help very much on, on, on bringing the economy to decent wages and decent benefits and investing in all the, um, you know, uh, structural weaknesses that they have in, in the U.S. and health and education huh. and infrastructure and all of that. So for someone like you who looks at these things and says, look, the Fed is not the solution to deflation nor inflation. They're, they're a player, but they're not the major player. Mm -hmm. When you watched the country and the world sort of throw itself at the mercy at the feet of the Fed in, in coming out of the crisis of 2008 and continuing to do it now, does it just make your head want to explode when you're like, those are not the people that we should be leaning on to solve this problem? Like, have you been screaming this for 
15 years. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I used to have a little bit more hair in 2008. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I could just see it's it's like someone, you know, I don't know, let's pick a bad sports analogy. It's like a baseball game is going on. Yeah. It's primarily between pitchers and batters, and someone keeps talking about the right fielder. Like, let's make sure we get, you know, buy the most expensive right fielder we can. You're like, that's not who's throwing pitches and who's hitting uh, balls. I mean, once every nine batters, the right, you know, the right fielder (laughs) is at the plate, but they're not the major influence. You certainly want them to catch the ball and, you know, make a throw from right field to just belabor this bad sports analogy. The Fed has an important role, but the fact that all of us are talking about, you know, like uh, Joe Biden mismanaged Yelton and what she was deciding to do with rates. And somehow I know when the, you know, every quarter when the Fed is meeting together to decide to raise interest rates and sort of, you know, wishing yeah. that a ball is going to get hit to right field so that, you know, we can get out of this inning. Seems yeah. ridiculous, frankly, that, um, that, that that's, the, that's where a lot of us feel like we're stuck thinking about inflation. Like, I don't know, maybe it's yeah. okay that now mortgages are at 7% instead of, like I refinanced my house, yeah. I don't know, six months ago, a year ago, two point four percent, two point four. It's now seven percent, and now right. like prices are high, so housing prices. No, but, are but here's falling. the thing about is uh, that uh, what they're housing. trying to do? They're trying to drive housing prices down by making it more expensive. So, in other words, it, you don't pay absolutely. the owner of the house more money; you pay the bank more money. How does that actually solve inflation when the buyer is still spending the same amount of money? It's just not going to the home buyer; it's instead going to a financial institution. Why does that? Why does right. that work? Yeah, it, it's not going to work for for a couple of <laughs> reasons. Uh, number one, because we already have huge shortage in uh, in real estate here in the U.S. And right. pent up demand related to just the demographic shifts that we're we're having in in the U.S. and that means that with these higher interest rates, mortgage rates, the people that you've eliminated from the market are the ones who can afford it the least, mm-hmm. and the remaining people are the people who can actually afford it. The higher income groups are gonna bid up home prices even more because we already have a shortage to begin with. So we haven't really solved. The, the housing problem, we've just forced a bunch of people out and forced them into rental uh, properties, potentially. Mm-hmm. And, and we know what's been happening to rental properties since 2008. That's been gobbled up by large hedge funds yep. on yep. a national scale. And, and now it's a, it's a corporate squeeze of, of the working class, of the middle class on the rental front and in a very vicious way. Yeah. So we're just shoving problems under the rug. We're, we're not really addressing the, the inflation problem. Uh, but to, to, to stay with the Fed for, for a second uh, and to emphasize that we're really dealing with an ideological commitment here by the Fed uh, to a certain way of dealing with inflation pressure points, which is the interest rate. And, and not using the other tools that the Fed oh. has in its jurisdiction at its disposal that can actually help us ease the, the shortages and the oh. inflation pressure points, but happen to you know step on other people's toes. What would that <laughs> in be? The corporate what, what's sector. included I'll, in that I'll list give you an other things? I'll, I'll give you an example. So when it comes to construction materials, right? There's shortages and disruption and that 
clearly drives up the price. And we have a housing shortage, and we would love to have additional public housing, affordable housing, or just housing across the board that is accessible to the average American family. So that's competition over the raw materials, right? And the skilled labor and the resources that will build those housing. Now, let's say I'm a private bank and a customer comes in and says, I'm going to build, uh, uh, I, I, I run casinos and I would like to build a new casino that's going to use a lot of cement and concrete and all kinds of materials. And this is a conversation in the private sector, right? So now mm -hmm. the lender, the bank is thinking, do I lend to a real estate developer to build affordable housing or do I lend to this uh, corporate uh, casino network? And, and if they opt for building the casino, that's massive amount of resources, construction materials and skilled mm -hmm. labor mm -hmm. and, and so on, that's reallocated away from housing for the people to uh, casinos. Do you see what I mean? But we never talk yeah. about private banks fueling inflation in this way, hmm. right? We only talk about the government fueling inflation by uh, building subsidized housing or building uh, affordable housing or investing in critical infrastructure. Because at the end of the day, that critical infrastructure that we're building is competing with real resources with somebody who's building a casino or somebody who's building something that's, I would call, complementary in these times of you know economic squeeze. So the Fed does have the capacity to regulate credit, access to credit via its own jurisdiction uh, in the banking system. The Fed and, and this climate crisis that we're dealing with, the Fed can impose on banks regulations of their capital adequacy ratio. We call them CARS, capital adequacy ratio. So mm -hmm. we have uh, a climate crisis that is fueled by lending to fossil fuel and carbon intensive economic activity. That's irresponsible. What central bankers are actually thinking about right now and possibly introducing soon is having two different car ratios, yeah, a capital adequacy ratio for fossil fuel carbon intensive economic activity, and then a lower capital adequacy ratio that's green. And that immediately incentivizes banks to start lending because it's going to be more profitable because the ratio is, is lower, the uh, the reserve requirements for, yeah. their, for their capital ratio. It's going to unleash private sector lending in areas of the economy that will actually help us deal with inflation, deal with the climate crisis. So these are the kinds of intricate tools that the Fed has in its uh, toolbox, but they refuse to use because that will upset the casino owners. <laughs> that right. will upset the fossil fuel industry. That will upset a lot of other interest yeah, groups. Sure, but sure, those yeah. are the actual triggers that the Fed can use to ease the inflation pain and the climate crisis and the housing crisis, all kinds of things. But they never even tell us that these tools exist. The yeah, only I've never heard that of that. They promote is raising right. interest rates and throwing a bunch of people under the bus, but never talking about the casino <laughs> construction project that's fueling inflation indirectly because that doesn't cause inflation. Only people uh, in, in working class communities struggling to find housing, those are the people who cause inflation. So the people I hear talking about inflation are saying we probably peaked in the US, say in March of this year. 
and UK and Europe might be a little further down the road. They're going to continue to climb a bit higher and things have been much worse in other countries than the US. Mm-hmm. But it, now we're going to see a decline in inflation. Partly, if I understand this right, because inflation is always measured year over year. Mm-hmm. So 2022 was comparing with 2021. Mm-hmm. And then 2023 is going to be comparing with 2022 where things were already higher. So it's a proportional difference, right? So it seems like inflation rate or the amount of increase mm-hmm. is a different thing than just how much things cost, right? Because inflation is measuring the change. It's not measuring the amount per se, right? It's right. measuring change. So people will say, well, the inflation rate's going down. If that's true, so we're going to start to hear a narrative, oh, inflation's gone down. What the Biden administration passed and what they referred to as the Inflation Reduction Act is a bunch of mm-hmm. spending, actually, spending more money at the government level. That will all kick in mostly at the end of 2022 here and through 2023 and 2024. So a year from now, there's yeah. going to be more spending on things that will reduce inflation, they believe, by inserting more money into the economy, not by restricting the amount of money in the economy, which is what the Fed is doing. Right. Can you just talk a little bit about all those little data points that uh, you know right. someone like me is hearing when wa- watching news about all this and trying yeah. trying to make sense of it? Is it any of that, or is yeah, it just the, the conversation about uh, we've reached a peak of inflation? Um, there's a part of it that I uh, agree with, but dislike the reason why I agree with, and there's a part of it that that I think is is not uh, logical. So the part that I agree with and dislike is uh, those people who are saying we've reached a peak, they are relying on the idea that the Fed is going to continue to raise interest rates up to five, possibly six percent uh, in the next several uh, next few months. And that will be painful enough to slow down the economy, um, possibly cause a recession, and, and that will ease the demand and ease the inflation pressure. So that's the logic, and that's the part that I dislike, that, that they're actually going forward with this idea that the Fed is committed, and the Fed said it, uh, that we will cause a recession if we have to. Um, yeah, so, so like it, that, it does work, it does make sense, but it is painful for most of us. Right. <laughs> and, and it's gratuitous pain. We don't have to do it this way. Mm. Uh, the, the other part about uh, that forecast that I don't think is reasonable is because all the inflation pressure points that we talked about on the supply side, on the market power side, on the uh, supply chain disruptions, on, on the Ukraine crisis, yeah. I don't see any of those root causes being substantially eliminated uh, in the, I mean, we can't, I can't predict the future, right? Maybe there'll be peace in the Ukraine in the next uh, two weeks, hopefully, or something, but I don't see any evidence of it. Just listening to all the escalation talk from Canada, from, from the Europe, from the U S and on, on the Russian side, I don't see any reasonable possibility to say, oh, those inflation pressure points will, will ease uh, pretty quickly. Um, mm. So that's the reason why I, I don't actually think we've reached uh, a peak. And because of all of those inflation pressure points are untouched, I think the Fed will become even more aggressive and more vicious mm. with its uh, drive towards a recession. 
and 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 that's the that's the ugly truth of of how our policymakers unfortunately are 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 managing the economy today. All right, one one last solution question for you here. How much of this has to do with the labor shortage, and of that, how much has to do with the reduction in immigration? I, I'm under the belief that we've moved out millions of voter millions of workers, mm-hmm. and COVID caused a million people to die who are now out of the workforce and a bunch of other people to reevaluate their lives. So we have such a fragile workforce uh, balance in the U.S. anyway. You take out 3 million plus people and then all the auxiliary folks around that were impacted. That not being able to get sufficient workers seems like it's a primary driver of the cost of things. People just have to pay more money to have workers and still can't make stuff, you know, can't build things, can't sell things, can't do roofing work, right. can't do building construction work. It's sure. really a problem. How much of this is that situation in the U.S. Uh, and around the world because of all the global displacement and, you know, immigration mm-hmm. just created, it's been such a tragedy in the last five years of what's going on. Do you think that has much to do with, with all this? It has something to do with it, but it's not, it's not the full story. And, and this has to do with some uh, strategic mistakes that we've made, especially here in the U.S., uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, when we uh, shut down the economy uh, and didn't really insist on keeping people on the payroll. I'll give you one example. Uh, when um, uh, airlines uh, had to, you know, be grounded during the, the COVID pandemic. What do you do with, with the pilots, right? You offer them early retirement, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and other people who lost their jobs just switch careers and move on to, to something else. And also during that time period, if I was a young person who was thinking of uh, a career as a, as a pilot potentially, would I be in my right mind to go through uh, uh, training and education right. paid for with loans, student loans out of pocket to become a pilot in the middle of a global pandemic where nobody's flying? So we've slowed down the rate at which we introduce new people in that skilled profession and okay. we forced experienced pilots into retirement. And then a year and a half later, we reopen and we have a shortage of pilots and you can't snap your <laughs> right. fingers and educate and train professional uh, skills into existence to bring more pilots into the profession. And similarly, you can't bring people out of retirement unless you really offer them an incentive um, that is financially rewarding to bring them back. And we have a shortage. And this is across the entire system. People were forced to reevaluate their professional uh, careers in so many different ways. And and it runs across the board. To this day, across the country, we have a a good chunk of the workforce working remotely, partly because their employers don't want them in the workplace and partly because they realize I don't really need to be uh, Mm -hmm. paying for gas and transportation and lunch at the uh, local restaurant or whatever. And when I can do most of my work here at least three days a week. So there's all kinds of shifts that have happened and people moving um, into education or into the care economy, caring for elders, caring for family members, reassessing their need for financial resources to begin with. Is it really worth my time and effort and and all of that if if I'm just barely making it month to month with all the stress and all that? So all of those factors are here 
And then we have a generational shift, obviously, with the younger people entering the labor force with very different uh, expectations, uh, understandably so, of what is actually uh, a workplace environment, what is actually a, a decent quality of life. And that's refreshing in a way, yeah. um, but it's also disrupting an existing established set of norms that says, you work for me and I pay you uh, as such and and you do as I say, <laughs> or else yeah. uh, there's plenty of people to replace you. That's not the case anymore. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and that should be the, the platform for a national conversation about labor standards, uh, about the role of... Uh, uh, health benefits, uh, retirement benefits, all of these things have to be reevaluated. And again, we're talking about corporations. We were just talking a few minutes ago who are laughing all the way to the bank mm -hmm. with record profits and complaining that workers don't want to work under these miserable <laughs> conditions. <laughs> yeah. So let's be coherent at least <laughs> with, with our well, perspective. Yeah, and I guess, I guess I can understand a business um, or maybe even an industry saying, look, there's going to be seasons we're going to make more profits. Um, and we're in one of those right now, kind of coming out of the pandemic, there was some losses and now there's a bunch of gains. But what we don't want to do is take on legacy costs by hiring employees because employees are not only expensive now, they stay expensive five years from now, right? It's it's not, uh, not short-term. It's, it's harder to turn that switch on and off. So mm -hmm. I can imagine that businesses would be saying, hey, we've just got to pay off a bunch of debt we went into, you know, whether it was PPP yeah. loans or other things, and sure. we're making all this profit. Do you think there's anything reasonable about that? That's just we're in a cycle right now and profits mm -hmm. for businesses do go up and do go down. Is that worthy explanation or is this... Um, something more yeah you're, you're putting your finger on something that's that's actually very counterintuitive and and confusing for a lot of people we actually call it the paradox of profits and some people call it the paradox of wages because when you think of it if, if you're a small business owner let's say you run a restaurant yeah. and you know all of a sudden minimum wage goes up by you know five percent or ten percent you have to pay your employees more but your business is still operating at the same level of activity but your cost is going up because of the wages, the higher wages. So your profits get squeezed and you may actually go out of business. Totally logical, right? But if we do this across the board, if actually wages and benefits across the board for the working class, the middle class actually goes up and we actually have a qualitative transformation in the way we treat workers in the United States. What do workers do with their wages? A, a famous Polish economist from the 1930s has this famous line. He said, uh, his name is Mikhail Kaletsky. Some people call it Michael Kaletsky. I call him Michael Kaletsky. He says, workers spend what they get and capitalists get what they spend. Hmm. You get it? Uh, so workers will spend most of their income. So pay them more, they'll go ahead and spend it. But where do right. they spend it? They give it to the capitalists. They give it right? back. So <laughs> capitalists get what they spend. So if you treat your workers well, pay them yeah. decent wages and benefits, you actually boost productivity. You boost even the level of loyalty that they have yeah, to, yeah, to, yeah. to the company. And you spend more across the board in the entire economy. And that becomes that translates into higher revenues and higher sales, higher profits for corporations. 
So that's the paradox that most people don't get. They just focus on a small business owner paying a little bit in, in wages. And we need to pay attention to the small business owners. So how do we do this without hurting the smallest business owners? This is where the role of federal policy becomes important. Yeah. There are certain burdens that we put on small businesses that yeah. make it impossible for them to operate or compete with higher wages. And here I'm talking about lowering taxes, especially uh, FICA taxes on small business owners. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, in, in and you don't have to lower them on, on the largest corporations, but small business owners, you can lower the tax burden. The biggest burden for small business owners totally. is health insurance cost. So having a, a proper health health system in the U.S. that doesn't put the burden on the individuals and on the small business yeah. owners will allow those small business owners actually to afford the higher wages uh, to their to their employers, and and that's really the structural transformation that we so desperately need in in this country, and it's a win win for everybody. Yeah, that seems like I don't hear anything from Democrats saying we want to cut taxes for small businesses, and that's always used against them by Republicans. Republicans say mm -hmm. all Democrats want to do is increase taxes for everybody, and it hurts small business. And yeah. I don't hear yeah, any Democrats because, saying, like, no, we <laughs> we don't. We want to support small businesses. It's because they don't have a, a coherent, you know, complete framework. They they just think, oh, if we, if we lower taxes, that will mean fewer revenues we're going to have a deficit and and the republicans are going to jump on us and say oh you're going to fuel inflation with a bigger deficit it it's a whole package yeah right you have to have you know a, a coherent complete framework so that you tweak one thing on one end and and you have to tweak so many other things simultaneously to get that transformation and there is a there was a name for this thing. Uh, what did we call it when we tweak all these things and invest in uh, decarbonizing and inequality? Oh, it's called the Green New Deal. Thank you. I yeah. just remembered. Yeah, that's the thing that um, Democrats didn't want. Yeah. Socialism, you mean. Yeah. And, and, and isn't, isn't it true that some of the policies that were passed in the last you know, six months have some of that built into it? Right, that there's some incentives, tax incentives for yes. entrepreneurs in certain areas. Like when people say we're spending money on green economy things, and there's a yeah. Yeah. trillion dollars or something, or billions and billions going to be spent over 10 years, or maybe yes. they lowered it to five years on this. It's kind of that, right? It's these oh, are absolutely. incentives to so make the, it the, possible. The whole effort. Of, of the Green New Deal community, the MMT community, and shifting the narrative has actually put a dent in the thing mm -hmm. uh, in, within the establishment. So we didn't have a Green New Deal. We didn't even have a Build Back Better, which was a, a smaller version, a much smaller version of a Green New Deal. Um, but we did have a, a tiny little bits and pieces of, of the concepts in the partial student debt uh, reduction, in the Inflation Reduction Act, in the investment in, in infrastructure and climate action, and tiny, trips. tiny things mm -hmm. in the right direction that need mm -hmm. to be rapidly accelerated if we're going to you know, address all of the major issues mm -hmm. we've, we've been uh, struggling with. Well, Fadl, thank you so much. I know you've got uh, other work to do with paying students uh, <laughs> that you got to teach uh, in a half an hour. And thanks for uh, taking us under thank your tutelage. You. Uh, today yeah, and trying to try, trying to make sense out of all this. We appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you. See you soon. Well, well, well. Again, so good. Man, just 
blows my mind. There's been there's been nothing more consistent in paying attention, you know, as an adult in the last 40 years than the economy and inflation. And it still is just like the mystery of, you know, what is love? Somehow we can't really <laughs> figure yeah. it out and explain it in a way that, uh, because frankly, the economy, and I know we've talked about this a follow before, but the economy is, it doesn't make any sense when you just keep pulling back and explaining it. How again does this all work? There's something that just seems magical, mystical about <laughs> how is there enough money all over the world? Now, it's not equally distributed. Some people have more, some people don't have enough, all of that. But somehow a global economy of multiple currencies in different uh, opinions with all these various forms of government still works. <laughs> it's just really... <laughs> You know, and then we get upset when there's these marginal little movements, you know, like, well, things are 5%, 7% more expensive than they were a year ago. Like, seriously, all that we're holding together in this globe, in this global uh, economy, and then there was a pandemic that shut down whole sectors of the globe to the point that, like, the skies cleared up. And people are like, well, but things are 7% more expensive than they were a year ago. Yeah, the fact that <laughs> that's as bad as it is now is really spectacular. Like, that we weren't in a 10-year depression after COVID is stunning. Yeah, that the whole thing didn't just pop. The yeah. whole economy didn't just say like, oh, yeah, we can't, uh, we can't, we can't do it. So, I, you know, I'm not trying to downplay the, you know, the pressure we all feel for $4 gas, but holy moly, if $4.50, $5 gas, as opposed to $2 gas per gallon is the thing, we're, you know, we're, right. we got a and great looking suit bitter. on and we're just working on some dandruff. You know, we got to get the dandruff off the shoulders. I don't, I don't think it, we should be freaking out the way that so many people do about, uh, about all of this. And what we should be concerned with though, is for the people that, that, $2 a gallon difference really hurts and really causes like yeah. decisions like okay I still have to drive to work but now I can't get you know right. as much groceries or whatever that's a conversation we need to have that so many people in our society are living with such slim margins yes that that puts them over the edge into poverty and forces yeah. them to have really difficult conversations that is something right. we Be need to be worried about Totally, because we need to have enough flexibility in the system to accommodate that, right? Just saying, hey, things like this, consumer prices on very volatile commodities, fuel and some other things, you know, home fuel and yeah. vehicle fuel and all, really can make all the difference. You know, when there's $150 can be the difference between someone being financially sustainable and falling into unrecoverable debt. We need to solve that problem separately right. from let's make sure gas prices never go to $5 again. Like that can't be the solution any longer saying, mm -hmm. oh, what we need to do is make sure that we've, in, you know, we've bubble wrapped this thing enough where there's no economic movement that would cause gas prices to go up. Yeah. To your point, we need to create a different system by which people who fall into that kind of struggle when these inevitable shifts are going to happen have some assets and resources available to them mm -hmm. and that that really does seem more 
uh, more necessary. Which, all in all, I still think comes back to some kind of guaranteed minimum income uh, for people in the U.S. and having to ship in, instead of a wage requirement to have the government actually distribute money directly to people is the most efficient way for that for that to happen. Which is kind of what was going on with the child uh, earned income yeah. tax mm -hmm. credit that then went away and. For whatever reason, Democrats let that go away and kind of squawked about it for a little bit, you know, yelled yelled for a day and mm -hmm. a half, and then just let it go away. And they've had control of all three branches of government, and they still do right now. They should reinstate that thing. Well, Joe so Manchin that, didn't like it, right? Wasn't Joe Manchin like, the one that Joe Manchin didn't like? Well, it. Joe Manchin. He thought it was time for that. He thought it was time for that thing to expire. Yeah. Well, uh, big thanks to everyone in the chat, um, Alex. Candy, Alex, Matt. Alex, we were thinking about you today when we had uh, Fadal, uh, Dr. Kaboob back on because we know you you love your MMT. You become an MMT convert, and you want a little. <laughs> you want us to play the hits, so we're thinking of you, Alex. Yeah, yeah. Alex said he read the deficit myth, and uh, he says I think Democrats need educating on MMT. I concur. Yeah, and Alex, and Alex is a she, by the way. Oh, sorry okay. about that, Alex. Yeah, 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 Alex. Alex corrected me in an email previously. <laughs> All right, Alex. Uh, thanks for that. Uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, Matt. Matt jumped right in. Mike, all, all of you, um, and people that are that are new to the economics conversation. You're welcome. You're welcome. Candy us. says, "I'm still waiting for my trickle down from the '80s." <laughs> <laughs> We've been promised uh, that uh, trickle down economics right. for a while. I'm not much of a trickle. <laughs> Yes, not much of a trickle. Um, yeah, and do you do you remember that that was a, f a phrase? Trickle down economics was a derogatory phrase used in the nineteen eighty primaries for the Republican nomination, used by George H. W. Bush to critique Ronald Reagan's view of the economy. Oh, really? He's the one that coined. He called the two things: voodoo economics. And trickle down theory. Oh. He's like this. This trickle down thing. This was another Republican saying this trickle down nonsense doesn't work. And then they went forward with it, and like a lot of derogatory phrases, then became a yeah. They just uh, sort owned of, it, and yeah, owned it because trickles they, aren't good to begin with. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> no one like wants a think, trickle. No, you know, who wants to? And then, you know, they were using other metaphors about rising tides, lifting all boats. They were doing that, you know, trying mm. to suggest that kind of thing. But trickle down wasn't, wasn't something that was a derogatory term come up that was brought up by uh, Democrats or liberals. It was other Republicans who said back then, yeah, that doesn't work. And they all still know, yeah, that doesn't work. It's, um, but you know, in 2017, they passed a huge tax cut and still are telling all the rest of us, yeah, no, that worked. You, you have more money in your bank account now because we lowered the, the tax rate on, on the, on the wealthiest earners in the country. <laughs> and we'll see because now, you know, the Biden administration has raised tax rates on corporations and raised tax rates on the highest, highest earners and applied them and those are all going to be kicking in in 2023 and 24 and 25 and 26 so we'll see which produced better outcome the 2017 yeah. tax cuts or these increases now in the you know going to kick in in 2024 so let's look seven years after 2024 uh 20 you know so 2031 and Compare say and okay com compare 
and contrast. And then no one will remember any of this stuff because it's going to be 2031 and yeah. going to be, I don't know, doing whatever in the world we're doing in 2031, yep. which probably will look a lot like this. We'll probably still be running a podcast and uh, <laughs> we'll be on some new platform because, yeah. you know, these streams have all, dis your have all disappeared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll pop your contact lens in. All right. Is that good for today? That's good. All right, friends. Well, thanks for sticking with us and we will uh, talk to you soon. All right. Bye, everybody.